for a while, Walmart and I had a really good thing going. We really did. A number of years ago, I bought one of their premium car batteries, uh, one that came with a, a very generous free replacement warranty, right? You got like a two-year and then you get like a three-year or whatever. The more you pay, the, 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 the greater that warranty is. So what worked to my advantage in this relationship was the fact that I, like most of you, live in the Sonoran Desert. We live in the Sonoran Desert where uh, around 110 days out of the year, we get to enjoy temperatures at or above 100 degrees. And of course, uh, we know sometimes those days are much hotter than just 100 degrees. And as many of you know, those temperatures are no bueno when it comes to a car battery. <laughs> Do you know that? Have you had to deal with this? Yes, of course you have. So every two to three years for quite a while, I would just walk into Walmart, set that battery down. They would exchange it for a new one and I would walk right out. No extra cost, no questions asked. As I said at the outset, for a while, Walmart and I had a really good thing going on. <laughs> but several years ago, all that changed. I'm guessing someone at Walmart HQ noticed going over financial reports that uh, there was a inequity in terms of battery sales and profits in the desert southwest. They picked up on that because uh, there was no way that Walmart was not losing money in that arrangement. So what did they do? They adjusted their policy. They adjusted their policy. They began to prorate their coverage. So when I would bring that battery in, I would begin to have to pay a certain amount of money to be able to exchange that. Thus, sadly, that arrangement in which in my time of automotive need, I kept getting and getting and getting, that arrangement simply came to an end. In the Gospel of Matthew, brothers and sisters, Jesus has also talked to us about an arrangement of getting and getting in our time of need. Let's look together at that at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. This, of course, was one of the readings from this past week in our Bible reading plan. And that's available in the back counter it's a, a, available for download on our website under the documents tab. So join us as we read through the scriptures uh, over the course of this year through the whole New Testament. But this morning, again, we're looking at chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Consider the, the question and answer that takes place here between Peter and Jesus. We read, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, it may be wise for us to ask the question, 
why is Peter asking this question at this time? Why? Well, if you scan back to the beginning of the chapter, the beginning of chapter 18, and start moving down, you'll see that Jesus has been talking about discipleship and sin from the very outset. Those are the two ideas, discipleship and sin, sinning and his disciples. Look at how he's working those out here in this chapter. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus talked about that foundational pride that inspires so much sin. We often call it here a way of grace, me-centeredness. Me-centeredness in a God-centered universe. That kind of pride that all human beings suffer from. He talked about that in verses 1 through 4. And because of that, our need to humble ourselves like little children. We sang about this at the outset of our time, didn't we? Lord, we need you. We need to be humble enough to say we need you. Every hour we need you. In verses 5 through 7 of this chapter, Jesus warned others about the seriousness of tempting and tripping up his disciples. Remember, this was a gospel written to a Jewish audience, believing Jews, but also maybe those who were on the fence. Therefore, there's many instances in this gospel where there is warning after warning about those who would try to steer believing Jews away from the Messiah and back into the traditions of the rabbis, back into the lifeless old covenant that was fading away in light of the new covenant. So there's a warning about tripping up his disciples. Those little ones mentioned are disciples, not children. It's the childlike disciple, the one who is humble. So in the same way, in verses 8 and 9, the, uh, Jesus is calling his followers to serious action in order to steer clear of sin themselves. Yes, woe to those through whom temptations come, but also woe to those who give into temptation. Christ is warning his disciples to take that serious action, those drastic steps, whatever is necessary to walk in obedience before God. And in the next set of verses, 10 through 14, Jesus called his disciples to care for one another in the same way that God cares for them, even when they stray like sheep wandering from the fold. But then things get more personal in verses 15 through 20. Take a look. If a fellow disciple strays and their sin, verse 15, is against you, against you personally, Jesus says, pursue that brother or sister. And if they don't listen, then enlist the help of other believers in pursuing that strain, that struggling brother or sister. You see the theme that's woven right through this discussion? So then Peter pipes up right in verse 21. If my brother does sin against me, you just mentioned it, Jesus, verse 15. You just mentioned this, this instance, what I should do. If my brother does sin against me, Lord, how many times should I do what you're calling me to do? What if that brother or sister is a repeat offender? What do I do with that, Jesus? Peter's question is an important one, isn't it? Absolutely important. 
forgiveness. Forgiveness. As much as we struggle with it, when it comes to relationships, forgiveness is absolutely critical. Right? It's like the the lifeblood of, of a relationship. It's like food and water to us. Relationships need forgiveness. It's a necessity if we desire healthiness in our relationships or any relationships at all. There's simply no way to overemphasize that fact. Maybe this morning as you hear that word forgiveness, it's pricking you. Maybe that's because you're longing for forgiveness. You're longing to see a relationship restored in your life. Or maybe you're wrestling this morning with the reality that you need to personally seek forgiveness from someone you've hurt. Something you said, something you did, something you didn't say or do when you should have. You see, forgiveness is so critical when it comes to our lives as human beings and our lives as children of God. But speaking of our struggles with forgiveness, let me suggest that what we find in this short exchange here in verses 21 and 22, what we find in this short exchange is the difference between what we might call flesh-informed forgiveness. Take a look. Flesh-informed forgiveness and faith-informed forgiveness. Peter talks about one. He speaks and gives highlights one kind. Jesus talks about a different kind. And let me suggest that this difference, once we see it, is something that we can see throughout the rest of what we're look, we've looked at here. It's something implied throughout the entire section that begins in verse 15 and runs through the rest of this chapter. So, so given the importance of this subject, let me share with you three distinctives of faith-informed forgiveness. Beginning with verse 15. So we'll use this first verse, so we'll use this first point as a stepping stone to arrive at our main passage, verses 21 and 22. But we'll start with, take a look, number one, faith-informed forgiveness pursues the one who wronged you. Faith-informed forgiveness pursues the one who wronged you. Look with me at verse 15. Jesus declares, if your brother or sister sins against you, go, you go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This idea that faith informed forgiveness pursues the one who wronged you probably sounds strange to a lot of people it probably sounds strange to people because our flesh wants to emphasize two things as most important in that kind of hurtful situation two things what are they first we want to protect ourselves we want to protect ourselves and second we want the other person to be penalized protection and penalty Those are the two things that we're often most concerned about in a hurtful situation where forgiveness is required. Now, to be clear, a desire for safety is not ultimately a bad thing. It makes sense, doesn't it? To guard your heart, 
to guard that heart from hurts. And in the same way, a desire for justice is not ultimately a bad thing. We want to see wrongs addressed, not brushed under the rug. They do need to be addressed. But as Jesus is making clear to us in this verse, those things, protection and penalty, those are not the most important things. The most important thing in that situation is the well-being of your brother or sister. This is why the gospel is so radical. This is why it turns everything upside down. Because we don't think like this as human beings very often. We struggle. And yet God is saying faith informed forgiveness places the well-being of your brother and sister first to the glory of God. Notice how the conversation here with your brother or sister about their sin, verse 15. Notice how it's done in private. You see that? Why is that the case? It's to protect your brother or sister from unnecessary public shame. You go to him or her in private. Moreover, if that fellow believer listens to you, that is, if he or she repents, they remorsefully acknowledge their sin, then notice how Jesus describes that victory. He says, you have gained your brother. Isn't that beautiful? You have gained your brother to gain back a brother or sister from that disruptive danger of sin is the goal of forgiveness. Sound unusual? Have you heard that before? That's what forgiveness is about. It's to gain that brother or sister back. Uh, But people like us, thinking about that goal in mind, that radical idea, people like us have attempted for centuries to create some other version of forgiveness. Something that seems to honor Jesus on the surface, but ultimately is informed by our own flesh. And by flesh, I do not mean right? The husk, (laughs) the skin, the epidermis, right? I mean the state of fallen man apart from God as we exist in this world, that fleshly self. We try to create a version of forgiveness that's informed by the flesh, but this flesh-informed forgiveness, it doesn't pursue the offender, does it? It doesn't go after the offender. Instead, it tries to keep the offender at arm's length. We tell ourselves, I have forgiven that person in my heart. And when they realize what they did to me, they have my number, right? They have my, they know where I live. They're the one who sinned so they can pursue me if they want to make this right. That's our thinking. That's flesh informed thinking though. Now, there are most certainly situations when we have to leave the proverbial ball in that brother or sister's court. There are times like that. We leave it in their court and then we wait and we pray. But that is only after we have pursued that person, not instead of. 
The disciple who has said, I have forgiven that individual in my heart, but has not made the offense known to the offender, has not discreetly called that fellow believer to repentance, has done nothing to pursue that brother or sister. That Christian calls into question the sincerity of their supposedly forgiving hearts. You see, it's not informed by faith. It's informed by the flesh. It's informed by what's convenient, what's comfortable. It's informed by an emphasis on my rights, my safety, not the good of my brother or sister. But look at how this topic progresses into our main passage, our main two verses this morning, where we learn that number two, take a look, Faith-informed forgiveness is wisely limitless. Faith-informed forgiveness is wisely limitless. Another absolutely radical idea in terms of our flesh and our world. Look at how the influence of the flesh is also evident in this main in these main verses. Peter acknowledges the guidance of Jesus. Yes, Lord, I've heard you. Chapter, uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. I've heard what you've said about steps in order to go after a brother or sister who has sinned against me. I hear that. But notice he also wants to place some limits on that guidance. Here come the lines. Here come the fences. Here come the boundaries. In verse 21, he suggests what he believes to be an extremely gracious, an extremely generous measure of pursuing and forgiving an offending brother or sister. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Lord. As many as seven times. What do you think about that, Lord? What do you think? I've just put that out there. Seven times. Quite big of me, right? Think about how the flesh is at work here in Peter's response. Yeah, there's the possibility. Peter is thinking first about his own relational safety, protection like we talked about. That could be what's driving him here. That's why he puts this cap on forgiveness at seven. But he also might be elevating his own pride. Am I really going to let that person walk all over me again and again? Is that what you're telling me, Jesus? I mean, come on. After seven offenses, what message am I sending if I allow them to do that? What will other people think of me if I let him or her do that? That I'm just a doormat? Remember, flesh-informed forgiveness makes my well-being the number one priority. Me. But faith-informed forgiveness conforms to the commands of Christ. It understands the good of what Christ is saying. Jesus' response to Peter here is not a counteroffer of a literal amount of, of 77 times. Or as some translations have it, maybe in other Gospels too, uh, 70 times 7, 490 times. Jesus is not giving a literal amount here. He is using a figure of speech, a turn of phrase. He is using what we call hyperbole to declare that there should be no limit on how many times we are willing to pursue that's the, the spiritual well-being of our brother or sister by pursuing them for the sake of forgiveness and reconciliation. 
That's the real question. Jesus is is saying to Peter, will you really? Will you really? Seven times is all you're going to do in terms of pursuing uh, your brother or sister who is struggling spiritually. You'll give them seven chances in terms of being reconciled to you. That there would be restoration that would glorify God and His church. Seven times. You're not going to keep going after that brother or sister. You're not going to keep pursuing them. You see, Peter doesn't understand what he's saying. Now, we're going to see in just a few minutes, uh, we're going to see what should be informing the faith that informs our forgiveness. But it's important to qualify this radical prescription given by Jesus here. This idea of, of, of continuing, being willing to continue to, to forgive someone who wrongs you. There was a question I mentioned a moment ago. And that question was this. What message am I sending by repeatedly forgiving a repeat offender? That question is an important question. It's a good question. I say this because a forgiveness without limits is not a forgiveness without wisdom. A forgiveness without limits is not a forgiveness without discernment. Loving others well requires both grace and discernment. That's why we're called to speak the truth in love. For example, an abused spouse can both forgive her abuser and set up careful and care-filled boundaries in that relationship. Those two are not opposed to one another. If our goal in forgiveness is to gain the sinner through forgiveness, we cannot do that by subsequently enabling their sin. Do you understand? So, so though Peter wanted to put certain kinds of boundaries in place when it came to forgiveness to protect himself emotionally, relationally, there are times to draw boundaries. There are right ways to do it when we know that all we're doing is causing another person to stumble. All we're doing is putting them in a, in a, uh, a situation where we're continuing to enable that sin. Giving them opportunity to continue to work out rather than saying, no, 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 no more. Forgiveness without limits is not forgiveness without wisdom. It's not forgiveness without discernment. This reminds us about the role of repentance in our main passage. Listen to how Jesus... This is Luke 17. Take a look. He offers this same lesson in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says to his followers. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, (laughs) now it's seven times a day, and turns to you seven times in that day saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, is that when we talk about repentance, there's a requirement of repentance there. He needs to repent. You grant forgiveness. So uh, is that then a license to stay bitter, to stay distant until the offender repents? Like, well, he hasn't repented. She hasn't repented, you know. So whatever, you know, we'll we'll see what happens with that. Mm, Stewing, you know. 
Is that what Jesus is saying? Oh, it's okay, unless they repent. You can stay boiling over there in the corner. No, 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 no. That is not what Jesus is prescribing for us. In another gospel, take a look at this, Mark eleven twenty five. Jesus calls first for a forgiving heart. That's what he calls you to if you're his follower, a forgiving heart. Mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who also is in heaven also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses you see if i'm standing there praying i'm not talking with the person who offended you know who offended me i'm not in in an interaction here i'm by myself i'm praying and when i am doing that jesus says in that moment forgive that person forgive that person who has wronged you forgive them but so that when they come to repent you will be ready in that moment to grant that forgiveness to the offending brother or sister. So, what fuels this kind of heart? We've talked a lot about faith-informed forgiveness in contrast to flesh-informed forgiveness. And we've really seen, I think, that there's a radical nature to faith-informed forgiveness. It runs contrary to so many of our defaults. So many of our, so much of our thinking. So where does this kind of heart come from? The heart that in prayer is uh, coming to God, but saying, God, I forgive the person who wronged me. I forgive them. I want their best. You see, it's that heart that then goes and pursues the brother or sister. You have to have that heart to then say, I'm going to go and tell, tell that person how they hurt me. I want to bring this up. They may not think it's a big deal, but it was a big deal. Or they may be too, uh, who knows, they may be too callous. They may be ashamed of what they've done. I need to go and initiate that restoration. This is the kind of heart that Jesus is calling to. So what fuels this kind of heart? Take a look at number three, our third point here this morning. Faith-informed forgiveness is informed by amazing grace. Faith-informed forgiveness is informed by amazing grace. Jesus wants Peter to understand why it's 77 and not 7. He doesn't want to say, it's 77, Simon Peter. Come on, get it together, man. 77, not 7. Let's go, guys. No, no, no. He stops. He says, I want to explain to you why it's 77. So he provides him here with this powerful, this well-known parable that we find in verses 23 through 35. I'm not going to read the entire parable, the entire passage this morning, but if you are unfamiliar with what's traditionally called the parable of the unforgiving or unmerciful servant, then I would encourage you to take a look at the enti- that parable in its entirety later on today. It will be worth your time, definitely. But in summary, what are these verses saying? 23 through 35. In summary, the parable is about a king and one of his servants, a servant who owes his master an almost unbelievable amount of money, so big. But when the servant pleads for forgiveness, guess what? The king graciously grants that forgiveness. Complete. He forgives the entire debt. But later on, when that same servant, the one forgiven, the debt, runs into a fellow servant who owes him a dramatically smaller amount of money, He not only refuses this man's plea for forgiveness, but he also has the man sent to prison. Now, 
to understand that parable, the opening line is really key. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Dot, dot, dot. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. What is he saying? He's telling Peter that now in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, ushering in, the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? That was the message that Jesus proclaimed and John the Baptist before him. Repent, turn, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time, the door is opening wide. The mercy of God is being showered down. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is telling Peter here that in spite of our deep, deep sin debt before the throne with a capital T, that throne which is above all thrones, in the kingdom of heaven, men and women can amazingly Find complete forgiveness from God. The record just wiped clean. Therefore, if God has lavished such grace on us, how could we not do the same for others? You see why it's it's 77 and not 7? He's giving him the perspective that he needs. Uh, Of course, as I've suggested, a flesh-informed forgiveness seeks to stress the offended self over the offending sinner. Right? I'm the one who's been offended. Don't you care? That's what the real issue here is. I've been offended. Now, we see this very clearly in today's me-centered culture. Uh, We see it today in popular discussions of forgiveness. If you look at any site, usually on mental health, uh, self-help, Uh, forgiveness talked about just in the general secular culture what you will see is they are emphasizing the benefits and the freedom and the healthiness you will experience when you forgive that's what it's all about i believe that's true but because of god's design because of god's wisdom and god's wisdom does not start there with the benefits of forgiveness for us. As this parable reveals, a flesh-informed forgiveness often skews spiritual proportions. That is, it can exaggerate the offenses we suffer and make that hurtful brother or sister into the villain. Right? All of a sudden, this guy who's forgiven it just a huge astronomical debt goes out. And that was not, that, that, that amount was, is not in his mind anymore. What's just happened is not in his mind anymore. What is the most important thing is that what he is owed. That's what dominates his thinking. You see, this flesh-informed forgiveness is skewing, skewing the spiritual, spiritual proportions, our perspective. It's twisting our perspective. It exaggerates the offenses we suffer. It makes that hurtful brother or sister into the villain. And this, in turn, can make us slower to extend forgiveness. Flesh-informed forgiveness is slow, and it tempts us then to think of ourselves as the amazingly merciful hero of the story. Do you know what you did to me? Do you know what you did to me? The wrong that I suffered. And I'm not minimizing the hurt and pain that someone has gone through. But we're talking about in perspective. 
in light of the debt that we've been forgiven, the Mount Everest of our sins. And yes, this hill of sin that someone has brought into our lives is serious. But when we lose sight of perspective and we turn that hill into the Mount Everest of the whole situation, we have lost sight of a faith-informed forgiveness. And then we keep that person at arm's length. They're the bad guy. But, but here, brothers and sisters, friends, look, the stunning gospel truth that Jesus reveals in this parable reminds us that this hurtful brother or sister is not the villain. Ultimately, he or she is a fellow sinner. Unlike what our flesh produces, faith-informed forgiveness is inspired by a recognition of myself and the person who's hurt me. I see me there. I see my playbook being used against me. My playbook as a sinner. I recognize in them that I too am a guilty and needy sinner. And as I have received, so I should give. How could we limit to others what we have received and will receive so abundantly from God. You see, that's the difference between the flesh and faith. Brothers and sisters, friends, unlike Walmart and their battery replacement policy that I mentioned earlier, this divine arrangement in which in my time of deep, spiritual need, I keep getting and getting and getting, this arrangement will never come to an end. Does that encourage you? Does that encourage you? It should. God, is, God through Jesus, has offered you limitless forgiveness. That you will always be forgiven. Your debt will always be counted as paid because of Christ. How stunning to think about that idea. It will never come to an end. Why is that? Because the king himself has fully satisfied our incalculable debts. And how has he done that? He's done that through the riches of his own son. That's how he's forgiven that debt. Though Jesus was the promised prince of peace, he suffered violence for you and me. That's how he paid that debt. He suffered violence for you and for me. He took that judgment upon himself through his suffering, through his death on the cross. He covered what all of us owe. That moral debt, that sin debt before God. Think about it. Such lavish love, such staggering mercy, such amazing grace. And when I believe these things about my forgiveness, the forgiveness I've received, the forgiveness then that I'm called to give should be, must be informed by my faith. If not, it simply betrays a radical disconnect 
between what you've received and what you're called to give. How you see yourself, how you see the world around you. A disconnect between what you understand about the gospel and who you believe you're called to be in this world. Is your practice of forgiveness, brother or sister, I ask you this, is your practice of forgiveness faith-informed or flesh-informed? Think back. Think back. Think about now. Think about the past. How have you responded to those hurts? How have you thought about the offender? How have you thought about yourself? What have you put first? Even now, is there a need for forgiveness in your life? Is there a broken relationship? Is there a throbbing wound that God is calling you to address this morning? If so, ask God this morning to help you think about forgiveness above all in terms of His glory and the good of the other person. Think about that. And when you do that, you will be like Jesus. You will be like Jesus Christ in doing that. The glory of God and the good of that person, that person's need. Please don't miss the the even bigger picture here. The, The bigger concern that Jesus has here. The ultimate concern is for the good of His church. He's talking about His disciples. He's talking about how they love one another. He's talking about their unity, their relationships. Do you see that? Yes, we should demonstrate the same gospel-driven mercy in all of our relationships, every relationship in our life, but we are called to give special attention to our relationships with one another as His people. Why is that? First, because it glorifies our Father, the, the Father that we share. That's how our household does it. That's how our family does it. It's what He's called us to do. But second... It's because our Father, our Father's will is that a watching world sees Jesus in our midst. They need to see Jesus among us. That we embody, that we live out the good news that we declare. We talk about the forgiveness of God. We herald it as an amazing gift. Limitless forgiveness from God. Perfect atonement. If we are not willing to live that out and model it in our lives, we sabotage the work of Jesus. We undercut, we undermine the mission of God in this world. I know that you do not want to be guilty of doing that. And we miss out, of course, on all the blessings that God has in store for us when we walk His path. The blessing of reconciliation. I understand there are many, many questions that you may be thinking about that this raises questions in your mind about particular situations, particular instances. Uh, How do we apply, Pastor, this to this? What if this happens? How do we go about uh, addressing this? How do you navigate this kind of troubled situation? Those are great questions. I would love to help you with those. Uh, On the back counter, you're going to see a pamphlet that we did a number of years ago called Forgiveness. And this is going to, it's right there in the back. Grab one of these copies if you don't already have one. There is one online on our website as well under documents. You can read through it and it's going to spell out in a more systematic way everything that I've been talking about and even more. But we need to encourage, we need to bring our questions and we need to encourage one another in this very thing. As God has taught us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. Take a look. He says, be kind to one another, tender hearted, Forgiving one another 
as God in Christ forgave you. I couldn't think of a better summary of everything that we just talked about (laughs) in one sentence. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, there's the heart, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the spiritual perspective that we need. If we can do that here as God's people, I believe the Spirit will also help us walk in that same mercy out there. Amen? Amen. Amen. Forgiven and forgiving. Let that be our motto. Let that be what describes us, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Let's pray to that end. Miss the, the even bigger picture here, the, the bigger concern that Jesus has here, the ultimate concern is for the good of his church. He's talking about his disciples. He's talking about how they love one another. He's talking about their unity, their relationships. Do you see that? Yes, we should demonstrate the same gospel-driven mercy in all of our relationships, every relationship in our life, but we are called to give special attention to our relationships with one another as his people. Why is that? First, because it glorifies our Father, the, the Father that we share. That's how our household does it. That's how our family does it. That's what He's called us to do. But second, it's because our Father, our Father's will is that a watching world sees Jesus in our midst. They need to see Jesus among us. That we embody, that we live out the good news that we declare. We talk about the forgiveness of God. We herald it as an amazing gift. Limitless forgiveness from God. Perfect atonement. If we are not willing to live that out and model it in our lives, we sabotage the work of Jesus. We undercut, we undermine the mission of God in this world. I know that you do not want to be guilty of doing that. And we miss out, of course, on all the blessings that God has in store for us when we walk His path, the blessing of reconciliation. I understand there are many, many questions that you may be thinking about that this raises questions in your mind about particular situations, particular instances. Uh, How do we apply, Pastor, this to this? What if this happens? How do we go about uh, addressing this? How do you navigate this kind of troubled situation? Those are great questions. I would love to help you with those. Uh, On the back counter, you're going to see a pamphlet that we did a number of years ago called Forgiveness. And this is going to, it's right there in the back. Grab one of these copies if you don't already have one. There is one online on our website as well under documents. You can read through it and it's going to spell out in a more systematic way everything that I've been talking about and even more. But we need to encourage, we need to bring our questions and we need to encourage one another in this very thing. As God has taught us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. Take a look. He says, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I couldn't think of a better summary of everything that we just talked about (laughs) in one sentence. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, there's the heart, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
That's the spiritual perspective that we need. If we can do that here as God's people, I believe the Spirit will also help us walk in that same mercy out there. Amen? Amen. Amen. Forgiven and forgiving. Let that be our motto. Let that be what describes us, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Let's pray to that end.